0: Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Lost Road class. As you can see, I'm joining you from my prison cell again, the same prison cell in which uh, we spoke about... Wasn't it the uh, Christopher Lee Dracula film, I think, Um, in the Dracula class? I was in um, uh, precisely the same same room... (laughs) That I'm in now uh, and uh, i'm on I'm on the road I'm down in Charlotte uh, again where it's quite warm um, but fortunately I believe my internet to be sufficiently reliable for us to carry on here please do let me know uh, if there are any problems of course I know sometimes there might be some inter- some interruptions of my uh, you know uh, of my picture or of my audio um, which is often. Uh, you know uh, on the listener end, um but if you tell me when it is and I see a whole bunch of people tell me all, all at the same time i'll be able to suspect that it's uh that it's on my end and, and that that'll be good to know anyway um but I hope we'll be able to carry on so welcome to week seven of uh, the lost road class and our first real week discussing the Quintus Silmarillion i'm gonna all right, okay. I'm just going to come clean here at the very opening of class. Here, I'm not going to even pretend. Okay. As of now, I declare us officially a week behind. I'm not even going to try. I was I was prepping today's class, and you remember last time? I sort of I was like, yeah, whatever, no problem. We're not really behind. We'll just uh, you know kind of buckle down and do more of um, uh, more of <laughs> of the cuenta next time. And then I was sitting down with today's reading. I'm like, are you serious? Like. I'm not going to try to do sections one chapters one through eleven uh, of the Quintus Aurelian in one class. So yeah, no, no. So I am not even. I have no plans, not even any desire. In fact, to talk about the reading that was scheduled for this week, um, we're just going to push it back. I'm just going to. I just said I'm declaring us a week behind, and um, we're gonna we're gonna. So I'm going to talk tonight about sections uh, chapters one through seven, and then uh, for next time we'll do um uh sections 8 through 11 the next uh, the next bits uh the w- the stuff that was officially scheduled for this week so we're we'll be officially one week behind and that's fine totally fine um uh so uh yeah kimbrae does mean we're going to add we're going to end up adding an extra class but hey it's fine we can do that right it's not like you've got to move out of the dorms or anything um so yeah we'll be good um uh <laughs> Carson Cole says, uh, I may have accepted defeat, um, but as long, I need to, as long as I make it a, a glorious defeat, like Finn Golfins, you'll forgive me. Well, I don't know. I think it's, um, you know, likely to be sufficiently glorious. I don't know if I can promise to, uh, uh, to end up, uh, uh, you know, like the, like the eagle bearing my body away. I hope you'll, uh, You'll you'll settle for less than that, but we'll we'll see. And Yana, yeah, it does give a chance to catch up on reading, certainly, for those who might be behind. Um, But, uh, okay, all right, so that's where we are. So tonight, we talked last time about the frame of the cuenta. Uh, looking at the opening, uh, the the sort of the title page stuff, thinking about the frame and the Alfínes stuff and the the sort of the larger Book of Lost Tales stuff, and and just remember, you know, notice of course this has been consistent all the way through, right? This is obviously a major element of the the would be published, right? The to be published Silmarillion that Tolkien is compiling here uh, in the late '30s, he is uh, really building up. The whole found text tradition come down through Alfwina uh, and uh, and and you know the, this lore that it, that comes not quite directly but only at at at, at one remove. Well, okay, two removes from Pengalot of Gondolin uh, and Rumil of uh, of Valinor, right? So, and two removes, right? Being the first remove being Alfwina himself, who heard the words of Pengalot and read his writings, and. Took notes and wrote some of the stuff down and memorized a whole bunch of it and came in. But remember, he says he composed most of it uh, in England when he got back to the to the world of mortal men. Um, but then, of course, we're not getting it directly because we're not reading the Anglo-Saxon, right? We're reading a modern translation of the Anglo-Saxon, but it's still it's like super close. Um, those of you who did the Book of Lost Tales will remember that one of the functions, one of the purposes for which Tolkien was doing that kind of thing. Um, sort of showing this handing down of the legends uh, through Ariel Alfwina uh, into medieval England uh, and then on down. Is to create the famous mythology for England, right? That famous uh, uh, um, letter that Tolkien wrote, wherein he confessed that he was saddened by the poverty of his own country. How like all the other cool, all, all the other, all, all the cool countries had their own native mythology, right? There's native French stuff and there's native Celtic stuff, but there was no native English stuff specifically. Um, and fill the desire to fill that void, he confessed, was part of what um, led him to write the Book of Lost Tales, this idea of fairy lore, which is not derived from French fairy lore, which is not taken from Celtic mythology, um, but is really a native uh, English strain of fairy lore. And of course, like the true story of the elves, right? Um, that, um, That impulse... For Tolkien, he, you know, he claims that that impulse was sort of dying down, you know, and he kind of gave that up, and 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 you know that was it kind of fueled his early motivations. Um, and I'm not saying that we necessarily still see the same thing here, but the apparatus is still there, right? whether or not that's still what he's wanting to do, that, whether or not that's still what he's trying to accomplish. I mean, it does seem legitimately to be not so much at the center. Those of you who did study the Book of Lost Tales with me will, will recall that the uh, the story, the frame of the Book of Lost Tales, especially as it wound up and brought about its end, was not only a mythology for England, it was a mythology of England, like... How the island of, of England, you know, how, how Britain came to be there. Uh, because, of course, in the earliest versions, England was Tol Arasea itself. They were, they were identical. Um, and uh, so it was a story of how the island of Britain came to be there and why its position there and how Ireland got broken off from it and all that stuff. Um, so, of course, it was much more focused on being an explanatory myth of England itself and, 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 and of English um, geography and, and, and English culture. And we don't see that anymore. Of course, we don't see that at the center at all. All we're getting is a transmitted text, which comes down through an English tradition, through an Anglo-Saxon tradition, uh, to, uh, through that, to the modern era. So we, we can see it kind of shifting away from that. But again, the frame is not totally different. One last thing from the frame that I want to point to, though. Um, the note on tenses... See, if you're skimming the commentary, I bet you skipped this bit, right? Because you're like, you know, he, 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 Christopher puts the thing, you know, like, a note on the tenses in the text, and I bet you, when you were reading that, uh, you were at least tempted to skip that, right? You're like, oh, that, that sounds pretty skippable, right? Right? But let's look at this. In Q, in the Quenta, the past tense is used throughout in the account of the Valar, but with exceptions in the cases of Alse, Unin, and Nienna. These present tenses would probably not have occurred had not my father been imposing the past tense on thought that was not in fact so definite. In the opening section of AV1, there is a mixture of present and past, which is slightly increased in that of AV2. In QS, the present tense is used, with very few exceptions, and those of Manway and Melko were brethren and the Feanturi were brethren were probably fully intended. That is, they were brethren in the thought of Iluvato, so it's referring to a framework which is past of the, from the time in which it's speaking. Tolkos had great love for Fionnwe, was early corrected, and Orame was a mighty lord remains. And only Orame was a mighty lord remains, a repetition of the phrase in the Quenta. In paragraph two, the manuscript has, The elves named the Valar. The typescript has name. Okay, so here's my question. What is so exciting about this? This is an exciting paragraph. I, I can f- feel the excitement radiating to me over the internet. Um, everyone is over there is like, about the tenses. But you see, what's the trend? What does this show us? What do we learn about Tolkien's conception of the story and the frame of the story from this, from this paragraph? First, let's make sure we get the facts right, right? because I I have to admit, I think that Christopher Tolkien is not at his maximally lucid in this paragraph. Um, What happens in the old version, right? In the Quenta, the Quenta was in the past tense, almost all the time, it was in the past tense. In the Annals, which were written afterwards, we get a mixture of past and present. In the revision of the annals, which was written right before the Quenta Somerillian, this text, the QS, we get even more, right? We get more present and less past. And in the Quenta, it's almost entirely in the present. And they're only the only the only occasions on which it modulates into the past are those two sentences, which are like a frame of reference thing, so it's not like it's just in the past tense. And Orame was a mighty lord, which is like a quotation. He's quoting directly, He's follow, he's using the same phrase uh, in in from the Quenta, and so it, in other words, it seems like that was probably a slip that just kind of got got past him. So, what do we get from this? What's the what's the conclusion? What's the difference then? How has Tolkien's thought about the story and its frame shifted? From the Quenta to the Quinta Silmarillion. And remember, not much time has gone past, right? He finished up that stuff and now he's redoing it for publication, right? It's only, it's been, it's been a relatively short amount of time. So what do we see? Um... Good. Josiah says the fictitious author seems to be from a time when elves and Valar still have some presence in the world. Yeah, James Leibach says the text indicates that the gods are still present at the time of writing. Yes. Um, are we to understand that they're still present at the time of reading? It, it certainly invites that, right? Well, it kind of leaves it up to us to decide whether we think that's true, but clearly the author um, was within the story. Basically... I, I I agree with you guys. What this shows us, this trend that Christopher has pointed out for us, perhaps in not the most scintillating terms ever used in the English language, but nevertheless, the trend that Christopher has pointed out to us is one of increasing closeness to the events. The Quenta tells everything in the past tense and the sense that that gives us is... Um, you know this is this is an old this is an old story this happened and then this happened and then this happened and this happened there 's a big difference between that and um, you know manway is this, and they did and and they do this and this happens um, it 's much closer now historians use the present right not to imply that they 're right there and that it 's happening to them at the time right it 's not like it creates the fiction exactly of immediacy of of, of happening right around you. But um, uh, but again, there's a reason that historians do that. The reason that histori- or the reason for the historical present, is to to, to increase the closeness, right? Um, to um, to not to be simply kind of talking about it with a sort of a with a with a complete detachment. Kind of immerse yourself into the story. It's a really good technique uh literary critics do the same thing, right? You use the critical present, very often, most of the time really, to talk about a text, right? You don't say Tolkien said this, you say Tolkien says this. In chapter three, Tolkien writes blank, right? And you go on and say as you use the, the critical present. But again, why do you do that? What why has that technique become a thing, right? Because you're getting sort of closer to the text. You're you're sort of looking at the text as it exists before you as a thing, not just kind of referring to the uh you know, the composition back in the past, it does, Tom, make it more vivid. That's, that's, that's sort of the goal, right? Um, and that's what we have. Remember where the sketch in the Quinta came from, right? The sketch of the mythology in 1930, where this whole trend begins, where, you know, where this where this uh, you know, overview, plot summary uh, uh, version of the Silmarillion began was just was just a sketch was just that you know an overview given to contextualize something else right so just, okay so this happened and then this and then this and then he did this and then this happens okay so now you have the overview right the distance in other words between the speaker and the text was 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 very great um distance in, in almost every sense um in the quenta when he repeats it and decides to expand it um that you know that sort of the nature of the text it's it's it ceases to be Quite so, dis- but but nevertheless, that posture of distance is retained. Now we're entering within the frame. That's not how, Ariel would not speak of this in the past tense, right? He wouldn't be talking about the Valar in the past tense. Um, he the events themselves are past tense, like the events of the first of you know the, of, of the you know what, what will later be called the First Age. Those are past tense to him. Um, but again, it's more immediate, and he is relating the words of the people who were there, right? And and many of the people who witnessed many of the events. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. And Joyce, you're right. Uh, it, using the historical present does also allow the contrast and sort of to this, this shift in frame from the present tense to the past tense to show different time periods, as we can see, as Christopher argues, that Tolkien does there. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, yeah, we can certainly see that, that operating as well. Um, so, again, and this, so w- when you look at this and you, you look at this trend, you can see, again, uh, Tolkien investing more. In the frame, right? The entire uh, conception of the Silmarillion is more uh, sort of integrated into the frame conception that he has built up into how all of this stuff, the 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 Chlamas, the, the Annals, and the Quentin Silmarillion all came together and came to be packaged, deliberately packaged, not by J.R.R. Tolkien, the modern author, of course, uh, but by Alf Winna, and then uh, that merely being transmitted forward. Okay, first topic I want to hit at. As I said at the end of last time, what I want mostly want to do here is I want to touch on major sort of concepts and themes that we can see being explored. Um, you know, I'm not going to talk about passages... I'm not just doing like a, a bottom-up reading of the Quintus Silmarillion, right? Because a lot of these things we've talked about before, and I don't want to just go over the same, you know, like... Tracing the major themes of the Silmarillion because we've been talking about a lot of those themes as we as we've gone through, Um, and I don't just want to, you know, uh, where Tolkien seems to be doing sort of the same thing. I don't want to. I don't want to go on that. Nor am I just going to go through and do a checklist of all the things that are different and strange either. Um, But what I do want to do is I want to go through and I want to look at. Themes and concepts that struck me as, as very interestingly handled in this text and things which sort of can help us to see a bit more clearly, I think, where Tolkien is in his mind, where the story is in Tolkien's mind, right? What are some, what, you know, what are some kind of signposts? That we can see, if you see what I mean, for like the stage of Tolkien's thought at this time, um, that can help us to understand where he is on sort of that journey towards the material that's going to come out in the published Silmarillion, um, and you know, for us to look at it to to because remember, as Christopher says, this is a really important measuring spot, right? Uh, this um, this this place, which is um, the last. Version of the Silmarillion before he leaves it behind for a long time, and you know the the last pre Lord of the Rings Silmarillion. It's a major major checkpoint, so I want to make sure we kind of see the major. Um, Uh, the major signposts that point to the nature of the story and the nature of Tolkien's thought at this point. So, okay, first, the Valar and the depiction of the Valar. This is a really big deal, obviously, not just because the Valar are pretty important to the story and and stuff, but but because of the way that Tolkien's own thoughts have shifted about them. So my questions about this passage are particularly... um, uh, are... Oh, by the way, Karita, Yes, I did notice that passage. We're going to be talking about that passage later on. I'm glad you noticed that too. Um, but uh, okay, okay. Um, let's um, let's look at this. No, as I'm going this passage, my main question is for those of you who were here for the Book of Lost Tales and earlier versions. And my that my biggest, of course, I'll be interested in any observations you have about this text as I read it. But I'm especially interested to hear what, um, what you guys think who were here for the Book of Lost Tales class. What do you notice about how he depicts the Valar and the role that the Valar play in events? How are the Valar different here in this story than they were in earlier versions? In the beginning of the overlordship of the Valar, they saw that the world was dark and that light was scattered over the airs and lands and seas. They made therefore two mighty lamps for the lighting of the world, and set them upon lofty pillars in the north and south of the Middle-earth. But most of the Valar dwelt upon an island in the seas, while they laboured at their first tasks in the ordering of the world. And Morgoth contested with them, and made war. He overthrew the lamps, and in the confusion of darkness he roused the seas against their island. Then the gods removed into the west, where ever since their seats have been; but Morgoth escaped from their wrath. And in the north he built himself a fortress, and delved great caverns underground. At that time the Valar could not overcome him, or take him captive. Therefore they made their home in the uttermost west, and fortified it, and built many mansions in that land, upon the borders of the world, which is called Valinor. What do you notice? What do you notice? Okay. Um, Let's see... Yana says the Valar seem much less human, uh, less fallible. They don't seem to have kids anymore. Well, they do have kids. Um, the 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 idea of them having children is still there. We see them introduced with children, um, but uh, but they are a little bit. But but I agree with you that they are less human. That seems fair. Um, Good. Marie says it's more serious than the Lost Tales version. Yes. Um, Marie, I agree. And this, not not just in this passage, but pretty much everywhere through. Um, Did you notice anything funny? You know, any element of comedy in anything that the Valar did? I mean, the closest, maybe some, like... Tolkien isn't exactly played for laughs, but he's kind of like you know maybe he's kind of endearing but but anyway he's um he's they're not funny they're definitely not funny anymore and they were in the lost in the in the book of lost lost tales they weren't quite buffoonish but they were like this close to it in places right um yeah now karita makes a really good point you know what about the the business about the Valar not being able to overcome him like they couldn't physically couldn't or they just like You know, didn't, sort of decided not to. Um, Yeah, good. Uh, Mary was pointing out the same thing that they're much more grave, that he treats them with great seriousness. They're not comic at all, absolutely. Um, And Joyce, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it that they are both less powerful and more remote. Um, More remote seems perfectly fair. Jordan Sunderland points out that they're less naive. In the Book of Lost Tales, Morgoth deceives them. Right He makes the, the the lamps right he he says, "Oh, I'll help you with the lamps," and he builds the pillars, but he builds them out of ice so that when they light them they melt and crash, and he's like, ha suckers right and and again that that's a moment where like they're the Valar looking dumb with egg on their face right and and it's it's it, I mean it's not like it's uproariously hilarious, but it's still it it um there's a there's a there's a comic element to it, and at the very least. The Valar end up looking a little silly. The Valar are not silly here, but uh, but Joyce, you're right, um, and this is this is the thing that Carita, I think was pointing to as well. It's not just that they're not more grand and more remote; they're more grave, as Mary says. But they're not more grand, right? They are. They do seem to be less powerful as well. Um. Yeah, less tomfoolery, Arthur. I absolutely agree with you. Um, uh, good, good. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman does argue that it's definitely inability rather than inaction. Um, it's uh, what they couldn't do is 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 what's emphasized, not what they not what they didn't do. Um, and Nancy, I agree. One of the consequences of sort of. Increasing their stature, right, and making them act l- with like less recognizably human motivations, um, less sort of complex and and, uh, and and sort of fallible human reactions, um, is that they they have less personality, right? I mean, there is much less sense of the of the character and personality of each of the Valar. Um, in this account, and even, uh, I forget who was mentioning this earlier, um, but they're spoken of more collectively. James Liebach was saying this, they're treated as a group. Um, You know, the Valar do this and the Valar do that, not like the actions of individual Valar so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that's an interesting, I think this is a really important movement, Um, and uh, I mean, it's certainly something at the time when we were discussing the Book of Lost Tales, we were noticing that, you know, at the time I was talking about how the whole point of view of the story seems to be different, right? In the published Silmarillion, you get the sense of being, like, sort of from the elf point of view, right? And the elves are looking up at the Valar, and the Valar are great and awesome, and we're not speaking of them irreverently and, and um, you know, talking about, like, the madcap escapades of the gods. They're the gods, right? They're the Valar, and we take them very seriously in the published Silmarillion. Um, I'm not sure if... I think we're quite exactly there yet, but we're definitely we can see we can definitely see things moving in that direction, right? But look at here. Um, grander they may be, or graver they may be, more distant they may be, infallible they are certainly not, right? Less culpable I think they're certainly not. Then the Quendi, the people of the Elves, were summoned by the gods to Valinor. For the Valar were filled with love of their beauty, and feared for them in the dangerous world amid the deceits of the starlit dusk. But the gods as yet withheld the living light in Valinor. In this many have seen the cause of woes that after befell, holding that the Valar erred, and strayed from the purpose of Iluvatar, albeit with good intent. Yet such was the fate of the world, which cannot in the end be contrary to Iluvatar's design. Now, first... Uh, what um what is the cause of the woes that after befell, according to this passage? I'll admit that's a trick question. What's the cause of the woes? It's a trick question, because it, it seems to me a little ambiguous, right? I mean, there there are two things, right? Exactly, as Arthur says pulling the elves into the West, right? But also withholding the living light, right? Exactly, as James and Nick were just saying. Um, uh, Which one is it? Technically, like, grammatically, in this, what is the antecedent of the pronoun this? Well, the antecedent is the noun that comes right before it, right? You know, so that... that as yet withheld the living light in Valinor. That's the this that comes right before it, right? So, grammatically, you know, syntactically, it sounds like in this many have seen, you know, so in withholding the living light from Valinor. But it seems to be referring to the bigger thing. That's tag, tacked on on the end of the sentence, while that whole of uh, the you know the majority of this very long sentence is really focused on the uh, the summoning of the elves to Valinor by the gods. Um But of course. Um, that's interesting Carrie Gross says the antecedent of the antecedent was their fear right Um, yeah yeah maybe you can say that's really ultimately the the the, um, the cause right because both of these two things are related right clearly both of them are related um in, if invite, you know, inviting the elves to leave Middle-earth and come to Valinor, if that's the cause of the woes, well, that itself is only brought about because the Valar themselves have first withdrawn from Middle-earth uh, into Valinor and kept themselves there. Um, so I don't think it's necessary. I think one of the reasons uh, why Tolkien has sort of indulged in ambivalent or ambiguous uh, syntax here is that both of them both of them kind of work, um, and yet there's that rider at the end, right? Such was the fate of the world, which cannot, in the end, be contrary to Iluvatar's design. So yes, Joyce, the implication at the end that, that even the Valar's error was part of the was part of the design, right? Um, Iluvatar knew that was going to happen, right? It was part of the part of the whole system, and just as he says to Melkor at the end of the music. Nobody can alter the music in my despite. Right? Well, neither can the Valar, right? So neither the rebellion of Melkor nor the screw ups of the Valar can really derail Iluvatar's plan. Um Yeah, yeah. Um right, exactly. Tom Hillman says, and yet remain error. Yes, exactly. That doesn't mean that it wasn't uh that it wasn't a wrong thing. Um so the text remains um, I was going to say uh, 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 judgmental, that's not exactly right, um, but it remains uh, uh, critical of the Valar and emphasizing it. And Marie, you're very right to point out the significance of the emphasis itself, right? That the extent to which this passage contains editorial comment, right? These, this expressly stated view judging the actions of the Valar, that's an important element. Uh, in this, especially since remember the context, right? Remember the frame that this version of the story is more is, is insisting upon more, right? Um, the, uh, uh, So whose criticism is this? Pengalot of Gondolin? Alfwina is, Alf, is Alfwina's in this many have seen the causes of the woes that after befell. Um, is uh, is Alfwina offering us that off his own bat? Or is he merely telling us what the elf sages themselves have concluded? Um, I'm not really sure exactly which that's meant to be. Um, but uh, but I agree within the context of the frame, that kind of commentary becomes even more even more interesting. Um, this I found the most fascinating of all of the. Uh, the uh yeah. <laughs> karita points out that you know it's like i'm not saying they messed up but some people say they messed it's said not necessarily by me but yeah yeah That um karita i would almost suggest that that particular element of it maybe uh could be an argument in favor of it's being alfwina right uh sort of passing that along like i'm not i'm not i'm i'm just I, I heard that you know totally wasn't me um yeah yeah this passage is the one that, that I found. Of all of them, I think this one, to me, this is the most surprising Valar moment uh, in, uh, in, in this section of the Quenta. And Orome looking upon the elves was filled with love and wonder, for their coming was not in the music of the Ainur, and was hidden in the secret thought of Iluvatar. But Orome came upon them by chance in his wandering, while they dwelt yet silent beside the starlit mere, Quivienin, water of awakening, in the east of Middle-earth. And the gods were amazed, all save Manwe, to whom the secret thought of Iluvatar was revealed in all matters that concern this world. Manwe sat now long in thought, and at length he spoke to the Valar, revealing to them the mind of the father, and he bade them return now to their duty, which was to govern the world for the children of Iluvatar, when they should appear, each kindred in its appointed time. Lots of really interesting things here. Right, So, point number one. Um, He comes upon them by chance, right? If chance, you call it, right? We definitely see some sort of destiny going on there. Um, But he's surprised. He's surprised. He doesn't know they're coming. He's like, wow, children of Iluvatar! How about that? Right? Right? So that's startling point number one about this passage. Um, Startling point number two. Yes, good, Tom and Kevin, both of you. No, and and Marie as well. Um, The silence of the elves, right? Um, Why are the elves silent? The Quendi, right? Aren't they like the speaking peoples? Shouldn't they be speaking? No, they shouldn't be speaking, and Marie's got it, exactly. Why not? Why are the elves silent? Or rather, why should we have expected the elves to be silent? Anybody else? Exactly. Good, good, good. You guys have got it. Because we are all careful students of the Flamas, right? We've read the Tree of Tongues. Where does Elvish language come from? The Valar, from Orame, right? Their, their, their tongues are in the class, the, the philological class, Oromian tongues, because Orame teaches them the language. So they have to be silent because they don't, they, if they derive language on themselves, then we've got a totally different philological situation, right? So uh, abs- that is the, so, with a relationship. So absolutely. So we we know we we know the philological situation here, so naturally we would have expected them uh, to be silent. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what else? What else jumps out at you about this passage? What else is uh, uh, is is um, remarkable? Yeah. Nick, I agree. I find the the thing about them not being in the music a little bit puzzling, right? Because there are two things here, right? On the one hand, um, the idea that they are not... Um, part of the music, in the sense that they're not derivative of the Valar at all, who are making the music, uh, but directly of Iluvatar. And that I mean, that works well enough, right? Okay, sure, right. It wouldn't be, you know, this was Iluvatar's own thing rather than in their music. So they, in that sense, it wasn't in the music. But then you remember that other bit about the gift of men and how they're not, you know, they're not, they're not bounded by the music, which is as fate, which is as fate to all things else, including obviously the elves. Um, now, you can say, well, they're within the frame of the music, but they're not part of the music. But anyway, that that doesn't seem to, to, to f- sort of fit in really perfectly, right, for them not to be at all a part of that. So I, I'm a little bit myself, a little plus minus on the not being a part of the music at all uh, thing. But yes, to me, the bigger consequence of the ignorance of the Valar, right? Of, of, or- of Orme being like, no way, right? Like, look at these creatures. Whoever thought of this um, is Manway, right? Absolutely good. Several of you are, are pointing uh, uh, to this, Tom and, and, and Marie, um, that um, Manway, the gap between Manway and the rest of the Valar is bigger, much bigger. Right uh, in this version of the story, than we see certainly than we see later on. I think more than we saw earlier, and more than we see later, the idea that they are like the they, the the valor haven't even been briefed. Right, they're not like oh when, oh win. Are the children going to come? Instead, they're like hey who who to thunk it? And Manway's like. Actually, I knew about that the whole time. Oh, by PS, there are also men coming as well. I guess, maybe I could have briefed you guys earlier, but the time didn't really seem right. But now I can share with you the fact that I've known about this all along, right. Um, the dynamic between Manway and the rest of them is much different. For that reason, right? The authority, therefore, uh, of Manwe uh, seems to me to be very much greater. Exactly, Josiah, for precisely that reason, uh, that, you know, Manway is the one with the direct line to Iluvatar. Um, think about the passage in the published Silmarillion at the end of the Aule and Yavanna chapter, when Manway and Yavanna are having their moment, right, when they're talking about and eagles. And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and Yovana's like, but it was in the song, right. And the two of them, like, remember the music and the, you know, this is not a, a moment of her having to like come to Manway and be like, do you have any direct insight into this Manway? And him like, yeah, I can tell you about that. Right. Um, it's, um, this is, this is very different. However, I agree yes with both Carson and Nick who are pointing out that the ignorance of the rest of the valar seems flatly to contradict the business with the outlay and the invention and the and the and the dwarves right if they had no suspicion that they were coming how did outlay make them in advance remember that's an innovation um the, it's 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 a very recent development the uh, the the the, the Aule's invention of the dwarves didn't come into the story until the recent annals. Like, it's, it's th- this version through that just came in for the first time. Um, but I agree that does seem to be a... Uh, that does seem to be a contradiction. Um, you know, I, I, he can't have it both of those ways moving forward. And he won't. He's going to drop this. I, I think this this is going to get dropped almost immediately. This idea that they just came, were sprung upon the Valar as a, as a complete surprise, um, won't really outlive um, this... Uh, This iteration of the Silmarillion, but still really kind of uh, fascinating. And yes, the last bit in this passage that I find so amazing is that business about returning to their duty, right? Um, He bade them return now to their duty, which was to govern the world for the children of Iluvatar, when they should appear, each kindred, in its appointed time. Um, James is that saying it seems a little bit unfair. Uh, how can they return to their duty if they didn't know about it in the first place? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, James, that can be reconciled, I think, easily enough by saying, essentially, Manwe is revealing to them the purpose for which they were meant to Govern the world in the first place, right they thought they were governing they were supposed to govern the world just for the world 's own sake, and he 's now revealing to them and saying no, there was a greater purpose uh, all along for our governance of the world, and that was to 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 care for it uh, for the sake of the children who have now come and those who are yet to come um, so i can i can i 'm I'm, I'm fine with that being kind of a revelation there. But it also really does show Manwe's confession, right? Like, yeah, you know, we've been shirking, right? We've got a. This is not like let us continue our duty. Let us return to our duty. Um, this general sense that the Valar have been like playing hooky in Valinor, right? They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, they're they're shirking their duty. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, Margaret. I mean, it wasn't in the job description, but it's uh, uh, it's okay, you know. It's it's. I, I think it's it it still works, it still works. But again, the way, the extent to which this is tied, you know, this the uh, the 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 error, the serious error of the Valar is um, is really being emphasized here. Um, yeah hoarding the light in Valinor, themselves staying over in Valinor, the way in which they play favorites, the Valar play favorites with Valinor and neglect the, the rest of the world. Neglect would be the word, right? Fail in their duty. Shirk their duty. Um, yeah. Sorry. Okay. All right. Um, other, a uh, couple other things. Um, the next two passages that I want to look at are not just about the Valar in general, but uh, to me are a really interesting in the new context, like remember now, as the story is developed, um, one of the chief differences, of course, uh, well, there, there there are a couple differences between the stories as we're getting them now, in uh, uh, in this final draft, right, the publication draft of the Silmarillion, and where they were when we last saw them in the Quenta, uh, back in volume four, um, and we have we have some new context for this. This is one passage that jumped out at me. Um, that's kind of different. Look, look at the, the, all the extra attention that's paid to T'niquitil. Um How do you make sense of this? But Manwe and Varda had halls upon the loftiest of the mountains of Valinor, whence they could look out across the earth, even to the furthest east. Tiniquitil, the elves named that holy mountain, and Oyolase, everlasting whiteness, Elarina crowned with stars, and many names beside... And the gnomes spake of it in their later tongue as Amon Uulos, and in the language of this island of old, Tindbrenting was its name among those few that had ever descried it afar off. Why do we care this much about the mountain, right? I mean, it's cool. It was always cool, right? I mean, it was always significant, because it was the place where Manwe and Varda lived, but that's a lot of names, you know? I mean, you think about it. There are several things that get lots of names, right? But there are only a few things that get this many names. What do those things all have in common? What, what are those things? What are the things that get lots and lots of names? I, I mean, in the Silmarillion, and in this version of the Silmarillion I'm talking about, with the stuff that we've seen, h- annals, Thomas, Quenta, what gets long lists of names? We've seen a few. Good, Mary. Excellent. The two trees, right? Remember that long catalog of the names of the two trees that we get in the Quenta? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Nancy says, things that are important to multiple groups of people. Yes, that's the conclusion that we're led to draw from this. Because, of course, these are not just, like, multiple names. Like, we, you know, we think of this mountain in lots of different ways. No, it's, I mean, to some extent, right? It gives us different senses of it, right? Everlasting whiteness, crowned with stars. Um but it gives us the name in many different languages. By definition, if we're given the thing's name in many different languages, right in a catalog, right when we meet it, this cues us in to say this thing is obviously of such great importance that it's going to be spoken of by many different peoples in many different ways over many different times, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, several of you are thinking of good examples, but not, not, not now. I mean, I don't, not, uh, not later, not later. So, like for instance, Gandalf's names, right? Gandalf is called different names because he travels around to different people groups, right? And they all, they all know him, but it's different. This, that's not like this, right? This, when we're presented this name in legend, and we get, and here are the names. Mary's parallel with the two trees, that's exactly the the same kind of register, right? When we're introduced to the two trees, the mythic significance of the two trees, like we cannot possibly miss the fact when the two trees grow, this is not a a minor deal, right? Um, This is the entrance into the story of mighty uh, creatures of myth, right? Right? Stories are going to be told about the two trees again and again in many different languages. Their names and memories will be retained by many people over logs. Lots of stories are going to be told about them, right? That The other things are like the elves themselves. Um, think about those long lists that we get for the three different kindreds of elves. Um, like in the footnotes where they're called... They're called like the light elves and the spear elves and the and the blue elves and the you know, the sea elves and all of the you know, like they have been called and thought of in all of these different ways, right? So like the, the elves and the peoples of the elves themselves also have this mythic significance. The um the the trees clearly have that significance. But again, no, not Gandalf, not gondolin, not Turin. This text what we've read so far, just sections 1 through 7 of the Quintus Silmarillion itself. I want to be looking at it from within the context of this text itself, not just things which are given lots of names in, in, in other places, but places, things that are being presented like this. Again, like the trees were, like the elves were, right? What this shows, good, James, the Valar themselves. Yes, yes, we do get that, of them, and especially some of them, right? Um and the sun and the moon, Kelly, yes, good, good, and there was somebody else who said that. Yes, James as well. Good so so the trees, the sun and the moon, the people groups of the elves, the major Valar, especially Manway and Varda, and the mountain. Um Why? Or I say why? I should never ask the why question, because uh, it suggests I'm asking something different from what I am. What does this show us? The reason this jumps out at me is that it sounds like the introduction to the trees, or the elves, or the sun and the moon. It's like, seriously? Tenequitil is now in that category of mythic things? Why is that? It didn't used to be, right? I mean, you, if, we, if you're the Book of Lost Tales... I mean, you probably would have noticed in but I doubt you would have been like, oh yeah, man, like the mountain, the trees, it's all, like that's uh, the big deal, right? It wasn't the big deal, but now it's the big deal. Why is it the big deal now? Marie Prosser was pointing out that like one of these names is not like the other. There's one particularly odd and I think particularly noteworthy thing here. Um, yes, Chuck, you've got it. Chuck is asking about that phrase, in the language of this island of old. And Chuck says, uh, is Tolkien referring to England? Yes. Remember, it's Alf Winner speaking. Right, when he says, in the language of this island of old, he means England. Tindbrenting is its Anglo-Saxon name. That's important, and that, in my mind, gives away the game, right? Why is why has Teniqutel risen in significance because of the lost road, right? When you, as a human mariner, find the lost road, where do you end up, Teniqutel, right? It is the holy mountain that you see, um, and this work, this comes into the poems. Remember uh, Christopher Tolkien referring to the poem Imram. Uh, that Tolkien had written the 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 the, the poem about uh, Saint Brendan and the voyage of Saint Brendan and his uh, description of his of his voyage. Uh, Saint Brendan's voyage ends at the Holy Mountain. He sees the Holy Mountain, um, and uh, so that's that's it becomes the end point of the straight road, if you find the Straight Road, or happen upon the Straight Road. Um, and so that idea that, um, or even if you can see it, if you can see along it, right, you might be able to see Tall Arasea, or perhaps Teniquetil, beyond that. Um, it's the landmark, <laughs> like the last landmark on the Lost Road itself. Um so to me, that's what's so interesting about this particular moment is that we can see how, thanks to the lost road, right, now that we have the lost road and the Numenor and the post Numenorian stuff, um the sort of the the legend of the holy mountain, the myth of the holy mountain, yeah, the elves they're all about the trees, right they love the trees and they tell stories about the trees and 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 uh, you know of course, the sun and the moon, those are tolerably important to most people, but um but even in Anglo Saxon, we even we even get the Anglo Saxon name of the Holy Mountain, whereas we don't get Anglo Saxon name for the trees, right? Because the trees are not a myth among humans of this later age. But uh um but even in the language of this island we have a name for the Holy Mountain, right? And that I think is kinda cool. Okay. Here's another interesting kind of piece of context thinking about this. Moment in the context of the of the overall thing story we've been reading in, in the in in this final version of the Silmarillion that we that we've been studying in this book. Fingolfin and his son Fingon spake against Feanor. This is when Feanor is saying, "Let's take off." Uh, and uh, and rebel and abandon Valinor. And there was wrath and angry words that came near to blows, but Finrod spake gently and persuasively and sought to calm them, urging them to pause and ponder ere deeds were done that could not be undone. Uh, remember, by the way, Yana, you were absolutely correct earlier on when Gildor and Glorian in the Fellowship of the Ring says, I am of the house of Finrod. This is remember, this is the current version of the Silmarillion when we're doing the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, that's why. So, this is what he means when he says we're of the house of Finrod, it means he's of Finarfin's house, uh, the, the guy who will later be called Finarfin. Um, uh, this, this, this version of Finrod, okay? Um, uh, um, Okay, um, but... uh, Where was I? But Finrod spoke gently and persuasively. uh, But his own sons, Inglor... But of his own sons, Inglor, the guy who will later be called Finrod, alone spake with him. Engrod and Egnor took the part of Feanor, and Orodreth stood aside. In the end, it was put to the vote of the assembled people, and they, being moved by the potent words of Feanor and filled with desire for the Silmarils, decided to depart from Valinor, And later on a little bit after this we have the feanor making haste and being concerned that if the wrath and enthusiasm of the noldor is given time to cool that they will have second thoughts right so he he he, he's he he fears delay uh and is pushing them along as fast as possible um uh Um what uh, the story's changed here. do you remember what it's changed from? Do you remember where we got this uh, where we got this before? We talked about this a couple weeks back from the annals, right remember how this how this story went in the annals? not the annals of last time the, this time. Like, the, the second version of the annals. The version of the annals that are, like, packaged with this manuscript. Well, typescript here, but... Um, yes, exactly, Carson. Um, it is a far cry from the scope of time given in the annals. Um, this moves much more quickly. How long? Remember how long it took the the Noldor to leave? You know, they had their torchlight meeting, right? When did they leave? Yeah, yeah. a decade later, there were 10 years packing. Because, you know, you don't want to rush on this kind of trip, right? Um, one Valinorian year, which is 10 years of the sun, yeah. So a decade of the sun, it took them before they up and packed off. So, uh, you know, even an immortal elf might have had time to kind of rethink things a little bit over the course of 10 years. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, James Leibach does point out that vote taking can take a long time. I agree. Vote, vote, vote counting—that is, he says. Uh, yes, absolutely. But still, uh, yeah. Um, that I think is, uh, to me, this is this is a really kind of illuminating thing. So we ha- we have what seems to me just simply a direct contradiction between the annals and here. Now, my point is not to like make fun of that. Be like, oh, see, Tolkien screwed up. That that's not the point. The point is the two stories are two stories are different, right? And it kind of makes sense that they would because they're stories that are coming at the thing from different ways. I was pointing out the sort of issues with time and when he's doing the annals, he seems to be the way he kind of, the shifts that he makes within these drafts of the annals and the, the shifts that he made between the first version and the second version of the annals, you can see him kind of, when he maps it out, he's sort of pushing for it to come out in a certain way. Right when he's thinking of the big picture and doing this, the kind of overarching plot planning, essentially plot mapping that the annals bring him to do, he wants to kind of make it to come. But when he's actually telling the story, right, it comes out in a different way, and I think a better way. Right, this is um, this works better as a story. This idea of the Noldor making this rash. Uh, uh, decision that they're going to regret, and Feanor knowing that it's a rash decision and needing to keep the momentum moving forward, and and the way that the the Noldor end up like hurtling into the kinslaying, so before they get really time to think through what's happened, now all of a sudden they've committed this crime, and now they they at first they didn't they didn't take the time to think before they left, and now they can't go back or feel that they can't go back, so now they're like committed, right, Um, because they've crossed a border, you know, they've crossed a Rubicon that they can't uncross um, through the kinslaying. Um, There's there's a there's a a psychological, emotional logic and power to the story as it's told here that you just don't get in the annals. You know, And, uh, um, and I think that that's So far from criticizing Tolkien or, or, or making fun of him for this contradiction I uh, I mean to praise him for this contradiction really um, that he doesn't let his the map you know that he had made of the plot in the annals um, keep him from you know d- deter him from what is really I think a, a, a superior story um, yeah um, yeah um, good. Yana, I agree that it was interesting that Feanor was arguing for leaving before the destruction of the trees and the theft of the jewels. Yes, that was the thing that got him banished in the first place, right? Um, he doesn't draw a sword on Vingolfin. We're told there's strife, right? Uh, not quite seeing eye to eye, but he's already rebelling against the Valar uh, themselves. So yes, his um, his rebellion in that sense really goes uh, um, goes goes further back. All right. Um, two more kind of general Valinorian points, right? Observations about Valinor as he describes it. First, this is, a, this, is a, this is really cool, right? In several ways. Feanor and his sons abode seldom in one place for long. They traveled far and wide within the confines of Valinor, going even to the borders of the dark and the cold shores of the outer sea, seeking the unknown. Often they were guests in the halls of Aule, but Celegorn went rather to the house of Orome, and there he got great knowledge of all birds and beasts, and all their tongues he knew. For all living things that are or have been on this earth, save only the fell and evil creatures of Melko, lived then in Valinor, and there were many other creatures, beautiful and strange, that have not yet been seen upon the Middle-earth, and perchance never now shall be, since the fashion of the world was changed." What do you notice here? What does this show us about Valinor? What does this, what does this suggest? Um, is <laughs> speculating there were dinosaurs and unicorns in Valinor. Yeah, why not? Of course. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. Um. The. Uh, Up two things that i would point to about this passage one the mm, the idea of the survival of things right this okay so first of all um you could read this in a with a positive or a negative spin depending on your point of view right you could say the Valar have cherished and preserved the life of all things, even those that end up not surviving. Right, um, many of them will die out um, and will fade and uh, and uh, and be and and are are now no more in the Middle Earth, especially after the uh, the sun thing happens. But in Valinor, not merely the memory, but uh, all of these creatures themselves are. Preserved, right? Yes, Cecilia. Exactly. It's what the it's what the perfect earth should you know could have been or 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 should be. Yes, Matthew. A very kind of Garden of Eden feel. Exactly. That's the that's the positive spin, right? Um. What's the negative thing? What's the negative spin? Exactly, Nick. They're hoarding everything, right? They're keeping all the good animals to themselves over there, right? That, uh, that, yeah, that it's like of a piece with them keeping all the light, right? So all the, uh, all of everything is uh, is over there, you know, all of all the living things that are or ever have been on this earth um, lived then in Valinor. Wait, does that mean, so does that mean that all of the creatures that were in Middle-earth, like, have been brought there, or... The source of all things is in Valinor and some of them they share with Middle-earth and some of them they don't, right? That kept all the unicorns to themselves, right? So in, if you meet the unicorns in Valinor, but there are no unicorns in Middle-earth, right? Um, it's, uh, it's It's, yeah. Exactly cat Turner was thinking of the same word exactly that they that they hoarded them a couple of you uh joyce and and uh, uh, and, and Chuck and Nick are thinking this kind of sounds like a like a zoo right like there's these exhibits over there in Valinor and you know that like it doesn't. you don't have we don't have to read it that way right you know that like they're they're keeping them all as like a freak show over there in Valinor or something It's just that they they live there probably in the wild doubtless deliriously happy and everything's great but um but still yeah Marie a Noah's Ark vibe was exactly what i was feeling uh, uh about that too but 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 anyway I, you can read it positively you can read it negatively but in either case it's kind of it's 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 interesting um this idea of um whether it's preservation or whether it's hoarding um this element is uh is is interesting and yes James this is a this is our our lead in to huon uh, with uh with Kelegorn. what do you notice about kellagorn and the and fanor and his sons as for kellagorn himself um, i don't know of anything that's ever said about kellagorn who will become kellagorm with an m again someday soon um, i don't know that uh, th- his stock is ever gonna rise any higher uh than when we're told he can speak all the tongues of all the birds and beasts. I mean that is cool. And remember that's not just like kinda cool, right? This is the text that contains the chlamas, right? If you can know if you know all the tongues of birds and beasts, you are cool with a capital C, right? That makes you awesome. Um so that's interesting, right? Um, I, th- you know, Keligorm is uh, is kind of gonna fall, right? Um, but uh, but this kind of gives him farther to fall. I think. I mean, this is kind of uh, this is kind of remarkable here. Um, but what else? Thinking back further, I think to the beginning of this passage. What do we learn about um, um, about Fanor and his sons They abode seldom in one place for long They traveled far and wide Within the confines of Valinor Going even to the borders of the dark And the cold shores of the outer sea Seeking the unknown Yeah, Arthur, I was thinking the same thing Kind of sounds a little melko Yeah, exactly Carson and Corita thinking the same thing Yeah, a little bit a little bit. I mean, the parallel between Feanor and, and Melko is right there. It's always been right there, right? And this seems to be actually an, an enhancement of that parallel, an uh, an emphasis of the parallel between uh, Feanor and Melko, uh, even than we've seen before in the past. Um, and interesting, Arthur, that's a really great point. Within this context, Celegorn himself is traveling alone and not with his family, right? So just as Melko was apart from all the other Valar doing his own thing, uh, the children of Feanor as a group, right? The Feanorians as a group are apart from the rest of the Elves, but then Ceilgorn himself is apart from the rest of the Feanorians. Um, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. And they're restless. Good, several of you were pointing to that word, James and Chuck. Um, uh, and Tom, yeah, uh, restless. That that seems important, right? You know this this concept of the Long before, they are rebelling, right? They um, are probing the borders. They're not content just to hang out. They're like the opposite of the Lindar, right? Those elves, which will someday be called the Vanyar. Um, they're not they're not content to sit at the feet of Manwe and Varda. Um, they are they want to they want to explore. Right. Um, Carson says it reminds him of the foolish wishes of the Numenoreans, and I can, um, I can, uh, I can agree with that. Um, okay, uh, one other, uh, one other Valinorian concept. No pass led through them. That is, so the, so the mountains after. It's too late, right? After the darkening, they decide, okay, we are getting we're getting serious about defending Valinor. We already extended the sea, right? So we're across a wide sea, and we already put up the mountains. But now, boy, we're going to make the mountains so tall and so like not even like a well, not to put too fine a point on it, not even a spider is going to be able to climb up the outside of those walls. That was kind of an oversight on our part. But we're not going to make that. We're not going to. We're not going to make that. that mistake again. No pass led through them, save only at the Calakilia, wherein stood the mountain of Kor. This they could not close, because of the Eldar who were faithful. For all those of Elvish race must breathe at whiles the outer air of Middle-earth, nor could they wholly sunder, the Teleri, wholly sunder the Teleri from their kin. Because, of course, the Teleri don't even live inside the walls. They live down by the shore. So if they closed up the, the mountains entirely, well, it would have been really bad. Because right? they'd have cut off the Teleri, and well, they would have suffocated the other elves. Because remember, we talked about this in the last class. Um, this is one of those things that sounds metaphorical, right? Um, they must breathe at Wiles, the outer air of Middle-earth. That doesn't just mean they you know, they kind of like to go back and look at Middle-earth. It means they literally must get, like, they don't have enough oxygen in Falinor, Um and we learned about that. We learned about this in the last uh, class when we looked at the Embarcanda. That the air, uh, the atmosphere, like the the physical atmosphere of the world, shifts at Valinor, um, and that's when you get the, the 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 different the the space up above. Uh, Il, you know, the Ilmen, which uh, which the birds can't fly into, um, and which only the spirits of Manwe can go into. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, this this is like they literally physically need to breathe um, the the air of Middle Earth. So, okay, so they've got to they've got to do this. Margaret wonders. Margaret Joyce wonders if the animals have the same problem. I, I, I was wondering, I was thinking that too, Margaret. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they too have to go in, kind of get a few uh, whiffs of the uh, Middle Earth air, and then they can and they're good for a while. I don't know exactly how that works, but um, but anyway, okay. So they have to do that. But but the Eldar were set to guard the pass unceasingly. The fleet of the Teleri kept the shore. The remnant of the gnomes dwelt ever in the deep cleft of the mountains, and upon the plain of Valmar, where the pass issues into Valinor, the Lindar were camped as sentinels, that no bird, nor beast, nor elf, nor man, nor any creature beside that came from Middle-earth could pass the leaguer. Whoa! A constant vigilance! Uh, this, um... um uh, this... This is doesn't exactly sound like the Garden of Eden anymore, right? Um, This doesn't really have the whole, um, I don't know, like peace and repose atmosphere of Valinor. The elves are being tasked now with the guarding of this pass and the way that what had been merely... The settlements of the elves that they had settled in because of their love, right? So, the 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 Teleri loved the sea, and so they settled down on the strands of Elvenhome, right on the on the you know of 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 the Bay of Elvenhome. They settled down there in the city of Alquilande in the city of Alqualondë the Al- was their primary place. The Noldor were up there in 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 in, in Túna upon Cor. Where also the Lindar were, but then they moved further inland, right, in Valmar, because they wanted to be closer to to, to Niquetil and to Manway and Varda. But now, they're camped. Now the Teleri, who used to just kind of hang out at the shore because they liked it there, and made boats, because they loved boats, right, and ships, and sailing on the sea, now they are a navy, right, tasked with, (laughs) with patrolling the shores. Um, and the, the gnomes, right, the Noldor, who in their city upon the hill are now, they, they now, are, it's, now a, it's now a watchtower, right? It's now a position of strength from which they can defend the pass. And in case anybody gets past them, uh, we've got the Lindar camped as sentinels inside, right? Not, not, not because they're closer to Manway and Varda, uh, but so that they can form a third ring of defense, uh, inside um, Yeah, James Stevens says it sounds like they're circling the wagon um, Yeah, yeah, exactly And as uh, 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 J- that was James Stevens who said that And James Liebeck, I agree with you um, I can't help but think um, That think it's kind of funny In the context of when we do meet A.R. later on And she he shows up and waltzes in and nobody notices him <laughs> the, the idea of Arendelle coming in and being like, "Huh, where is everybody?" Mm, Yeah. Oh well, I'm turning around and leaving, right? Um, In the context of uh, the, (laughs) it's really kind of a.
1: uh,
0: It was a lapse, lapse in vigilance on the one day when someone actually came, Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I agree, Mary. It's not a, It's not like it's a prison camp. It's not like the elves themselves are being imprisoned. It's a fortress, right? The word leaguer is used. Leaguer's I mean, it's, it's like they're besieging a thing, right? Um, or encircling a thing. Um, remember that, of course, famously, the other place where you see the word leaguer all the time, and it's still in the published Silmarillion, is, the, is when the elves, you know, when the Noldor set up the leaguer of Angband, right? Um and they try to hold morgoth and the forces of morgoth in leaguer um behind their their defenses to keep him out of the rest of beleriand um this isn't the same thing right you know i mean it's not it's they're not uh, t- but it's here you're keeping people out instead of uh a- instead of trying to keep them in right um but still at the end of the day it's a um um it's a defensive fortification. Yet, yeah, so Tom, you're right. This is the opposite, right? Not meant to, you know, to again to, to, to keep out instead of to keep in. Um, but, uh, but it's hard not to make the connection, right? It's hard not to see the elves in Valinor now living a kind of similar existence, right? They're on military high alert all the time. They're now made into a military force. They're not at rest anymore. It's a... This is a strange innovation, I think. A stra- very strange innovation. Um, and it's hard... I'm not sure I can point to any other passage in the Quintus Silmarillion that has a bigger impact imaginatively for me uh, on like what life is like in Valinor, right? I mean, this is like a paradigm shifter for me. Uh, that, like, I mean, did they did they do sentry duty, right? I mean, did they have the, like were were they supposed to be at their post for was somebody going to get demerits from for lose for missing Eorindol, right? Was is, is somebody is there going to be a court martial, right, over like whoever is is it is it like in the Hobbit where the guards got drunk and and fell asleep? I mean, like inquiring minds want to know. Um, it's um, it's 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 this is a radical change, and of course it's not going to stay. Well, this this will drop out um, and not make it later on, but um, it's still uh, a remarkable glimpse that uh, that Tolkien gives us here. Okay, I want to look at the Doom of the Noldor. Oh, by the way, um, uh, Marie, I saw you mentioned before. You were lamenting earlier that I wasn't uh, that I wasn't looking at the um, the the oath. A Fanor and, and I'm not. I don't have a slide of the Oath of Feanor, um, but if you have particular observations, Murray, that you want to make about the Oath of Fanor, feel free to make them, and we'll I, I can I can I can I can mention it. But I wasn't going to look at it in detail. But I didn't I didn't want to totally rule out talking about it if you wanted to mention something about it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Kelly asks who they were trying to keep out. You know, giant spiders. Giant spiders are high on the list. Um, uh, men, yeah, men, yeah. We you can't be too careful, right? Uh, who you let in? Um, so, because uh, uh, um, I mean, think about it. There's going to be. We are going to have a major security issue later on, right? From the King of Numenor, right? Morgoth spies, sure. Yeah, I mean, you never know when he's going to. I mean, he came in once and 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 no one was paying attention, right? So, dug on it. We're not going to get suckered that way again, right? the The, the peace of Valinor will no longer the, will not be able to be threatened by Morgoth again, and we will ensure that by. <laughs> completely destroying the peace of Valinor and putting everybody on high alert all the time. Um, I mean, it begins to sound slightly dystopian. Uh, but anyway, okay. I want to look at the doom of the Noldor. This is Mandos, of course. Um, Much he foretold in dark words, which only the wisest of them understood concerning things that after befell. But all heard the curse he uttered upon those that would not stay or seek the doom and pardon of the Valar, for the spilling of the blood of their kindred at Alquilonde, and fighting the first battle between the children of the earth unrighteously. For this the Noldor should taste death more often and more bitterly than their kindred, by weapon and by torment and by grief, and evil fortune should pursue the house of Feanor, and their oath should turn against them, and all who now followed them should share their lot." Obviously, one of the really fascinating elements here is we get another one of these moments where, when a thing is said, and it kind of sounds well, not exactly metaphorical in this instance, but um, uh, in the published Silmarillion, when Mando says, Slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, right? He's making a prediction, he's not saying i 'm doing something to you here right um he 's just saying, Let me give you a little bit of insight right into the consequences of your action, right? The path that you guys have chosen to walk is gonna end in tears uh unnumbered tears arguably um but that's where you're that's where you're that's where you're gonna head right um that is the inevitable consequence of the path that you have chosen that 's kind of the atmosphere. ...of the curse of Mandos as we get it in the published Silmarillion. Notice the difference here, right? The difference here is um, uh, good. Yeah, Josiah, that's a really good way of putting it. This is more of an actual curse than it is a prophecy, right? Um, yeah, uh, for this, the Noldor should taste death more often and more bitterly than their kindred. Um, and it, this becomes even clearer later on, that when Mando says that, he does, he's not just making a prediction. This is not a prophecy. As as Josiah says, it's a curse, right? You are now going to be more liable to death. I am cursing you with extra vulnerability to death. Um, it's going to be easier to kill you now than it would have been before. Um and so that i think that seems a, a really uh, a really important point um yeah good Mur- uh, Sorry, as uh, remind me if i don't get back to it in a second i don't want to interrupt here but yes a- absolutely um uh good good um yeah, yeah. Okay, actually, Marie, I will talk about it now. Um, Marie points out in the oath we do get the this version of the oath now has them swearing by the holy mountain, right? So once again, we do see the we do see sort of the stock of Teniqutil is consistently rising, right? It's uh, it's the the stature of that in the myths is uh, is is bigger. Um, yeah, good, good, um, excellent. Okay. More this Karita, uh, uh, this is the passage you were referring to earlier, uh, and I t- I loved this passage. I thought this was this was really neat, and here we get an element which we n- we don't get at all. This is, this is gonna this is going disappear. This is one of those. Um, uh, this is one of those uh, uh, passages. I wish we didn't lose. It is said that among other matters, Melko spoke of weapons and armor to the gnomes, and of the power they give to him who is armed to defend his own, as he said. Uh, This kind of sounds like a Second Amendment argument. Anyway, the elves had before possessed only weapons of the chase, spears and bows and arrows, that is, hunting weapons. (laughs) It still sounds like a Second Amendment argument. Never mind, never mind. And since the chaining of Melko, the armories of the gods had been shut. But the gnomes now learned the fashioning of swords of tempered steel, and the making of mail, and they made shields in those days, and emblazoned them with silver, gold, and gems. And Feanor became greatly skilled in this craft, and he made store of weapons secretly, as jealousy grew between him and Fingolfin. Thus it was that the Noldor were armed in the days of their flight." Thus too, the evil of Melko was turned against him, for the swords of the gnomes did him more hurt than anything under the gods upon this earth. Yet they had little joy of Morgoth's teaching, for all the sorrows of the gnomes came from their swords, both from the unjust battle at Alquilonde, and from many ill deeds afterwards. Thus wrote Pingalod. Okay. Um What do you notice here? What strikes you here? Um, yeah, good. Carson says, "Oft evil will shall evil mar." Yes, Carson, uh, that many times is seen. Um, absolutely. Uh, the the yeah the stockpiling element here, Carita. Right, it's not just that they make swords and uh, you know maybe they wear them openly and maybe they don't, but but yeah, the the let us lay in a supply of weapons. The, uh, the the stockpiling pass, uh, element in this passage, Corita, strikes me as the most awkward one of it because it seems like that would that seems to imply that this whole footnote has been dragged in merely in order to explain a simple question, right? Everyone like inquiring minds want to know where did how did the Noldor end up slaying all those kin, right? Um, you know why why aren't the uh, why aren't the the noldor and the uh and the the teleri engaged in fisticuffs on the keys of alqualonde right we need to we need to find, clearly and especially if they're spontaneously doing this and they don't have time to think they certainly don't have time to forge again with with a decade to work they could build up some armaments before they go after the teleri so we have to have some um um we have to have some explanation, right? Of that, though, I have to, I have to admit that uh, the idea of the kinslaying uh, being a being a, a, a huge uh, a, a scrum of, uh, of, of of wrestling and boxing and uh, uh, martial arts maneuvers does sound uh, really appealing. Yeah, exactly, Marie. This like rolling brawl all over the harbor. Um, it probably really it really would have been quite a bit better. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, okay, so so we get that like, uh, this is me closing a plot hole sort of uh, sound to the whole thing, but it's clearly more, right? It's clearly more than that. It works, and the part of this passage that I love, and the part of this passage I miss most when it, because it's, it's not in the published Silmarillion, is the two-edgedness of the thing, right? Um, Melkor has his plan, and it's an evil plan, and it's working. Right? Oh, but it undermines him, and he's the one who has the most to regret from. The, oh, well, okay. The Teleri might kind of regret it too. The Noldor, but anyway, you see the point, right? You know, it's when he succeeds, it 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 works against him, right? Again, as Carson, as you were saying, oft evil will shall evil mar, um, and yet remain evil, right? Um, the forging of weapons by the Noldor was wrong. It was a wrong thing, right? It shows there's no clearer piece of evidence that they are on a bad, you know, a downward trending moral path here. Um, and it's coming straight from Melkor himself. But, remember that passage uh, earlier on about the, the mistake, you know, the great, um, the great error that the Valar made and how many of the woes came from this? And yet, so it was destined, and, and nothing that happens escapes the will of Iluvatar, right? And you can see that working out in a different way here, but but similarly, right? It was wrong, it was an evil plot by Melkor, and it was wrong for the Noldor to do it. And yet, it is a part of the story that Aluvatar is telling. Right. and they're gonna have a role to play the swords of the noldor are gonna have a role to play uh, for good even though it itself is uh you know not good not a not a bad thing or not a good thing rather it is a bad thing um yeah okay um. Veronica's wondering what the Valar expected the Elves to defend Valinor with when they were assigned military duty before. Not clear, uh, uh, Veronica. Maybe, maybe the bows and spears. Right? Those are okay. Uh, those are tools uh, and not just, uh, not merely weapons. But um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Veronica. Remember the the duty that they're doing is is just um, surveillance, right? They're supposed to. They're supposed to guard and keep the pass and make sure that nobody gets through it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it does. I agree. To, to them. <laughs> Margaret Joyce imagines them just pelting invaders with pearls and gems, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, um, but this uh, <laughs> uh, this uh, would make a really great comic cartoon, right? Of like uh, you know the Valinorian militia. Uh, at work. You know, the uh Valinorian Minutemen. Uh abs- absolutely, absolutely. Um yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, trust trust Tom Hillman for the apt uh literary misquote. Those are pearls that hit my that <laughs> that hit my eyes. Uh, I like. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, that's not what Shakespeare had in mind. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Tom, that that would also make a fantastic, <laughs> make a fantastic uh, cartoon. Okay, all right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, right. <clears throat> moving on. Moving on. Moving on. We have other things to talk about here. Um, I want to, um, I want to talk about one of the coolest. And most extended myths that Tolkien does, and doesn't just put into this version of the story, but really reinvigorates in this version of the story. If I had to point to one bit, you know, one section of this of today of today's reading, by which I mean last week's reading of the Quenta, uh, the Quenta Silmarillion, it would that I find most interesting, most fascinating that Tolkien went in that direction. It would be the man in the moon. Rana was first wrought and made ready, and first rose into the region of the stars, and was the elder of the lights, as was Silpian of the trees. Then for a while the world had moonlight, and many creatures stirred and woke that had waited long in the dark, but many of the stars fled, affrighted, and Tillian the bowman wandered from his path pursuing them, and some plunged in the chasm and sought refuge at the roots of the earth. The servants of Melko were amazed, and it is told that Fingolfin set foot upon the northern lands with the first moonrise, and the shadows of his host were long and black." Okay. This section is okay. I was going to say four sentences long. It's not four sentences long. It's three sentences long. Um, but I want to break it into four sections. So look at the look at the 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 um, first sentence, the first half of the second sentence, the second half of the second sentence, and the third sentence. Right. Um, if we just read elements two and four of that list or elements one and three of that list alone, it would work and we would have two completely different kinds of narrative. See what I mean? Let's do that. Okay, here's narrative number one. Tell me the difference between the two stories that I'm about to read you. The Moon Rose The moon first rose above the world. Then for a while the world had moonlight, and many creatures stirred and woke that had waited long in the dark. The servants of Melko were amazed, and it is told that Fingolfin set foot upon the northern lands with the first moonrise, and the shadows of his host were long and black. What kind of story is that? How would you describe that story, the the sort of the nature, the elements, the, the tone and spirit of that story? What's that like? Now here's the other story. Rana was first wrought and made ready and first rose into the region of the stars and was the eldest of the lights, as was Silpian of the trees. But many of the stars fled, affrighted, and and the bowman wandered from his path, pursuing them, and some plunged into the chasm and sought refuge at the roots of the earth. What kind of story is that? What's the tone of that story? It's, um... I find it a remarkable... Yeah, Mary, great way of thinking about it. Mary Dole says, the first is history, the second is myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, Lance was thinking of the same, uh, exactly the same terms. uh, Exactly. Um, Yeah, that's, that's, this is very striking. Very striking. The myth of the sun and moon um, in the Book of Lost Tales we got even we got much fuller versions of it than this right um but we got the whole thing why does the it's not just that it's a myth it's the kind of myth that it is right um i mean you may have always had questions about the moon right why does the moon you know why does it change right why does it go through different phases um and is you know in in a different like all the other stars and things are in relationship to each other, but here's the moon, and it's out of sync with the sun. It doesn't. It's not regular. It doesn't. Um, why is that? Why does the moon have spots? This was, this was a puzzling thing for a really long time. Really complicated theories about this in the Middle Ages, by the way. Why the moon has dark spots and light spots. Um, this was That was the hardest thing, by the way, one of the very hardest things for them to explain in, in the medieval cosmos. The medieval geocentric cosmos is awesome. It works really, really well. Um, it explains all the astronomical phenomena that you can witness, except for, it turns out, supernova explosions. But um, but apart from that, the only problem, the only thing that it had a hard time explaining was the spots on the moon. That was a big sticking point. Um, but anyway, okay, so we, we, we need to explain. Why does the moon have splotches? Um, why uh, does the moon, and, and and we get an explanation right we get a mythic explanation and we get a delightful mythic explanation we get a delightful charming and fun mythic explanation um, and in the book of lost tales even even a, even a beautiful even a touching uh, story right um, mythic story explain mythic explanation of these things if you remember from the book of lost tales does anyone remember why does the why does the moon have splotches why is the moon all splotchy according to the Book of Lost Tales. It's one of my favorite moments of that whole story. Is, is, does anyone recall why is the moon splotchy? Um, the fruit uh, and the flower which go into the sun and the moon are, uh, are huge, they're enormous, um, and so when the Valar are like carrying them over to like, so Aule makes the ves- you know the well no the the Valar together make the vessels, uh, and they're so they're 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 hauling it over, and uh, yeah, Nancy, you got it. they dropped it, they dropped the moon flower right the flower from Silpian, um, they, they dropped it and they're like oh you dropped the moon flower I dropped you know and they and it gets so it gets all rumpled and like uh, and that's why that's why the moon is splotchy, right it's adorable right it's adorable and they were we don't get that version right we don't we don't get the like cuz again no comedy with the valar right the, the Valor are never funny in this version and uh, and they're quite they're, they're quite funny in that i mean they're like don't drop the oh you dropped the moon um that's a totally different uh, tone of myth but like, but we're getting the same register of story here that we were before. We're getting this kind of mythic explanation that the seriously, the moon is chasing stars and the stars are running away. stars can run away, stars are afraid um uh the personification of things here it's very okay, so we don't see Tolkien doing this elsewhere in the Quintus Omerillion. Where else does he do this? Where have we seen this? Not where. I can't think of anywhere where we've seen a myth of this kind. Right? Um, it's one of the reasons why I like this. This is like... Uh, this is like the most fun that we, that like Tolkien has had in this... Uh, uh, I, I mean, like we got, think about the, the... I mean, there are other moments where sort of... Tolkien has dialed down the fun... Uh, that was there in the older versions of the story. Think, for instance, of uh, the rooting of the lonely island. Why is the lonely island where it is? Right. Remember why the lonely island is where it is? Because as soon as Olmo's back was turned, Ose comes along behind him and roots it down, uh, and then runs away. Uh, so when Olmo comes back, he's like, "Dang it! You know, I was, I was in the middle of moving that island, and you and you know, and there, so like, it's, there's this like kind of comedic conflict between Olmo and. Ulmo and Osei. We don't get that, of course, in this version. Anyway. um, The way that we see the one, like, the historical epic story moving along at the same time, going back and forth between that and this highly animated mythic personification version of this story, where now the moon, there's literally a man in the moon. Right? Um... And the man in the moon has a lot of personality, um, and for those of you who you know have been studying this, other st- especially those of you who took the, 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 the poetry class with me, or um, you know a bunch of my my Signum students will remember a bunch of these things. Uh, the man in the moon is a is, is a big character, right, in Tolkien's imagination, right? Um, uh, he, 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 he he does a lot with the Man and the Moon. The Man and the Moon is a, a major character in his story Rover Random, right? He wrote he wrote two poems in the twenties about the Man and the Moon, right, which feature the Man and the Moon as a in both cases comical figure. Um, of course there's the one that stays, that you know, that gets put into the Lord of the Rings, uh, and and becomes eventually Frodo's song in the Prancing Pony, though as we'll see, it's not the first song. Uh it's not uh, it's not Frodo's plan A in The Prancing Pony. Uh, it's his plan B. Uh, it, but, but it's eventually the one he's going to sing in The Prancing Pony. Um, but there's the other one, right? So there's the one about the man in the moon stayed up too late, which is the one that Frodo ends up singing. And there's the man in the moon uh, came down too soon, which doesn't make it into the Lord of the Rings, um, but is an equally comical um, uh, story about how he gets uh, how he falls out of the moon and ends up going to Norwich and, and getting swindled. Um, uh, so where are we going with this talking? Let's kind of follow this a little bit more. Okay. But Tilian was wayward and uncertain in speed and held not to his appointed course. And at times he sought to tarry Arian, whom he loved, through the fl- though the flame of Anar withered the sheen of Silpian's bloom, if he drew too nigh, and his vessel was scorched and darkened. Because of Tillian, therefore, and yet more because of the prayers of Lorien and Nienna, who said that all night in sleep and peace had been banished from the earth, Varda changed her design and allowed a time wherein the world should still have shadow and half light. Why? Why do we change the plan, right? Varda's original plan with the sun and moon is to make the sun and moon work like the two trees, right? With the two trees, there was always one of them that was lighting and then sometimes they're mingled and then the other one goes, right? But it's never dark, you know, right? There there, there was never nighttime in Valinor. Um, So it's going to be like that in the whole world, right? And uh, not everyone is a big fan of that, right? Lauren and Nienna are specifically noted, but that's not the only reason. The other reason... Is like the guy who's driving the moon is out of control, right? They gotta try to do what they can to separate this guy um, who is just stalking the maiden of the sun, um, who is above him anyway. Like the moon, the the man in the moon wants to marry up, right? Because we're told that she's a much greater and holier spirit than he is, um, but he just won't won't let go, right? You know, this is a the, you know the 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 man in the moon. Won't take no for an answer, uh, right? And keeps chasing after her. uh, And uh, uh, even though he's like, you know, he's... I mean, this guy, you'd think he'd get fired, right? I mean, the guy that they've entrusted to drive the moon is clearly doing a horrible job. Um, This is the only... This is the only moment where the Valor, where any of the divine creatures are are kind of funny, right? Some of the... um, So it's not just that we get this... Myth of explanation. Where else do we get? Have, do are we? Do we get? Am I forgetting any? Have we gotten a single other myth of explanation? And you, you know what I mean by myth of explanation, right? The, you know the, this is the story of how this thing came to be. You know, you know this is why cats and dogs hate each other. Uh, kind of mythic story, right? Um, but here we're not just getting an allusion to it. We're getting it all through. This is a, a huge thing. Like, why, why do the sun and moon move the way that they do? Why does the moon have splotches, right? Um, uh, why is, is the, even like the bow of Tilian and the crescent of the moon, right, the, the, the physiological resemblance? I mean, this is all um, inviting us to think about the world in a completely different and non- historical way, but this sort of purely mythic spirit and a very different spirit that he's giving to the sun and moon. Um, and it sticks it, it stays around. But Tillion tarries seldom in uh, tarries seldom in Valinor, loving rather the great lands, and mostly he passes swiftly over the western land, either Arvalin or Eremon or Valinor, and plunges into the chasm between the shores of the earth and the outer sea, and pursues his way alone among the grots and the roots of the earth. The grots at the roots of the earth. There sometimes he wanders long, and stars that have taken hiding there flee before him into the upper air. Here, he just won't let these stars alone. Right? There's, they, they, there's nowhere they can hide uh, from this guy. Yet it happens at times that he comes above Valinor while the sun is still there, and he descends and meets his beloved, for they leave their vessels for a space. Then there is great joy, and Valinor is filled with silver and gold, and the gods laugh, recalling the mingling of the light long ago when Laurelin flowered and Silpian was in Bud. I'm not even sure. I mean, I don't even know what I want to do with this. I don't know. what I'm not sure what exactly this tells us. The only conclusion that seems to me really safe to draw from these passages is that Tolkien seems to have loved this story. He seems to have loved this myth when he's, a, when he's left behind all the other myths right? Um, we're getting no other explanation um, for how things work anywhere. It's all shifting to history, right? It's all shifting to to the... These are the deeds of the ancient elves of old that have been passed down through through Pengalob, the wise of Gondolin, uh, and I, Alfwina, have brought this back and am here to tell you the true history of what really happened, not just the legend's And stories, you know, garbled stories that have survived among men. That's the context of this book, right, of this whole book. But here in the middle of it, we still get the myth of the moon who's in love with the sun and chasing after her, and uh, even at his own cost, right, when it's burning him uh, to get close. Um, And it even ends with like a happily ever after glimpse, because that sounds kind of happy, right, like that calling her his beloved, his beloved, right? And the idea that they, they actually get out of their cars, right? And walk along together. So maybe uh, maybe he succeeded. Uh, maybe Tillian uh, 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 makes it. Maybe he marries up successfully and, and she accepts him. I don't know. Um, but it kind of sounds kind of halfway ever after and it's kind of sweet. Um, but But this story so far, anyway, stands completely alone in the Quintus El Later on, much later on, we're going to see Tolkien repenting of this, right? Um, but remember this when we get there, right? Remember uh, when we get to the time of Tolkien's second thoughts about this stuff. Remember these passages about Tilian and, and, and Arian, Arion. Okay, we're running low on time, but uh, no problem, no problem. we're getting there um I look at at least one more passage here. oh, yeah, okay, two two more passages um this is a different kind of thing we're not a, we're not in celestial romance mode anymore here um. But the light is not the light which came from the trees before the poisoned lips of Angoliante touched them. By the way, the light they're talking about is the light that's hoarded in Valinor. Um the light of the sun is being kept in vats, the sort of liquid light of the sun. Like it's said before in the Book of Lost Tales, that the light of the trees was kept in vats. Um and uh uh which they tried to use to resuscitate the trees after Ungoliante uh, un, uh, um, um, uh, destroyed them. Now they're hoarding the sun's light in vats, which is kind of cool. But anyway, whatever. That light, the light of the sun and moon, is not the light which came from the trees before the poisoned lips of Ungoliante touched them. That light lives now only in the Silmarils. "'Gods and elves, therefore, looked forward yet to a time "'when the elder sun and moon, which are the trees, "'may be rekindled and the ancient joy and glory return. Olmo foretold to them that this would only come to pass "'through the aid, frail though it might seem, "'of the second race of earth, the younger children of Iluvatar. "'But Manwe alone heeded his words at that time, "'for the Valar were still wroth because of the ingratitude of the Noldor "'and the cruel slaying at the Haven of the Swans.' Um, yeah, Carson, okay, I agree. Interesting point number one. Olmo makes the prophecy, right? Um, Olmo, for, it's, it's not Manwe, who knows it all, right? It's not Mandos, who makes the declaration. No, it's Olmo, who tells this future about the end of the world, right? Okay, and I love the fact, this is, that moment at the end of this paragraph this is, to me, the most, the most Book of Lost Tales, just Tales-ish moment for the Valar themselves in this story, right? Um, this is a pretty big deal prophecy, right? He's prophesying the rebirth of the trees for crying out loud. That's huge, right? But most of the Valar don't even hear him. Why? Because they're like, stupid Noldar, right? Shut up, Omo. I'm busy fuming, right? <laughs> they're just not listening uh, because they're too wroth, at the ingratitude of the Noldor... What about the ingratitude of the Valar... Who aren't listening to the prophecy about the, uh, about the... About the trees... Yeah, exactly, Kimber... They're so upset that they're not listening... They're just sulking too furiously... Even to hear the prophecy... That Olmo is making... Other than Manway, He's paying attention... Um, but okay... Apart from that kind of interesting lapse... Into near comedy at the expense of the Valar... That we get at the end here... Um, the prophecy itself... So okay... The elder sun and moon, which are the trees, um, are going to be rekindled, and ancient joy and glory will return. So there will be a second Noontide, right? There will be a um, there will be a this is the 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 rest. So there the there will be a time of restoration and a renewal of bliss, um, and it's going to be brought about by men frail though it might seem that is the aid that the second race of earth has to offer they're going to be they're going to be involved they're going to be involved no hint as to how that's going to happen but it's going to but it's it's totally it's totally going to happen um yeah for those of you um um yeah, good good Marie. Now there are two elements here. One, um, Marie points out that since we're past the idea of the War of Wrath being the you know, the the, the, the end end that we're going towards, um, we need a new prophecy about the end of days that reaches past that. Yeah, yeah, we are placing more emphasis on that. But the prophecy was there in the Book of Lost Tales too. Um, remember the the talk about the rekindling of the magic sun. That phrase was one of the phrases which, to me, in the Book of Lost Tales, has this, um, just this power. Like, I didn't understand it. I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, And if it hadn't been for Christopher Tolkien telling me in the commentaries, I wouldn't have guessed, I don't think, that he was talking about the trees, like the rebirth of the trees like that because there was no which are the trees in the book of Austell's version of it he just said like uh, you know that that like this shall not happen until the magic sun shall 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 be rekindled and I'm like Whoa, what's the magic sun how does the magic sun differ from the normal sun is this just like the mundane sun that like prefigures the magic sun that's going to be more magical in some way um, but that phrase like you know the, kindling, the rekindling of the magic sun was one of those phrases that, like, I don't understand it. I don't know who he's talking about or what it exactly he's talking about, but it's it's really evocative, right? Um, uh, there are a bunch of things like that in the Book of Lost Tales. Like my very favorite, the Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. I have no idea who the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl is. I don't know. That is, I mean, at, at the time when he says it, we get we get some details about the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl later on, but it comes up a couple times before we have the faintest clue. What on earth he's talking about? What tower? Tower where? Why is it made of pearl? Who's asleep in it? I don't know. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, that so the 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 uh, the rekindling of the magic sun works the same way for me, uh, in the Book of Lost Tales now the concept has survived but it's it's being made much more definite and yes Maria it does push us forward uh to this time after after the final uh the final the final battles. But again notice how even this how much this differs from the Tilian and Ari the spirit of the Tyrian Tilian and Arian myth, right? Um it uh, it just it feels completely it's, it's this is definitely, you know, this prophecy sort of is is it's more like myth meeting history, right? Um, you know the the idea of the rekindling of the magic sun, the rekindling of the elder sun of the of the of the sun and moon of the trees, um, the restoration of this mythic, you know this uh, this mythical period of peace and bliss and harmony returning um, at the end of days. Um, but see, it's it's the end of our days, right? Again, it's myth meeting history, myth myth uh, myth becoming fact, I guess, right? Um, maybe that has something to do with something involved with the second race of Earth. I don't know. Anyway, one last point. Let's talk about the origin of orcs. Um, notice what is said about the origin of orcs. But the other Valar came seldom thither to Middle-earth. Uh, And in the north, Morgoth built his strength and gathered his demons about him. These were the first made of his creatures. Their hearts were of fire, and they had whips of flame. The gnomes in later days named them Balrogs. But in that time, Morgoth made many monsters of divers' orcs. No, of divers' kinds and shapes that long troubled the world. Yet the orcs were not made until he had looked upon the elves, and he made them in mockery of the children of Iluvatar. His realms now spread ever spread now ever southward over the Middle-earth. Um, okay. Um, first, notice this is the first link between orcs and elves, right? Orcs and elves have not been connected before. Now they're being connected. But we're still a mile away from the idea that orcs are derived from elves. And that's because we're still on... So, one thing to notice, remember last time I was saying we need to I, I want to be observing concepts and seeing like where do we stand here at this critical point when the Silmarillion is done, right? We're finished with the Silmarillion, ready to send it to the publisher. Um and then we're going to get The War of the Rings and things are going to happen, it's going to change later on, but where are we now? Two of the biggest concepts that are going to still still going to change eventually, but they haven't yet. They've remained consistent all the way through. One, the Valar still have kids. And two, Morgoth can still create things. He can still make races of his own. He is completely alone. He makes the Balrogs from scratch. He makes the orcs from scratch. Exactly. He can make as well as mock Tom. Exactly. In fact, with the orcs, he's he's exactly doing both things. Um, he's still he's he's imitating the children of Iluvatar. Um, but he can do it uh, on. His own um and that's that's a pretty that that's a pretty big deal okay um let's uh um, let's leave it there one more topic I wanted to hit on but it's uh we can start with it next time um let's uh yeah, Tom exactly. Tom says that if Morgoth can create then we have a more manichaean universe. Yeah, more of a what what sounds a little bit more dualist um than than sort of purely monotheistic. And Tom I do suspect that that's uh um why that's going to change the world that Tolkien articulates in the Lord of the Rings and after the Lord of the Rings Is an emphatically Augustinian world in that sense, theologically and philosophically. Um, uh, But yeah, yeah. So this is—it's just—it's interesting to note that this is still, this is still a thing, and it has a huge impact, not just on sort of thinking about Tolkien's theology or Tolkien's philosophy, but thinking about, um, thinking about Melkor's personality, his position, right. He's alone. He's always alone. He doesn't attract anybody else. He makes slaves to do his will. And they're compounded out of hatred, right? Uh, but uh, so they're, 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 a, they're a, an extension of himself. They're a reflection of his own attitude. Um, and they are enslaved absolutely to his will. But he, he doesn't have followers. He doesn't have any friends, right? Um, uh, he is more completely alone. Than he will be later on, and Carrie. That's a really good observation, Manway. For all that he is, much higher than you know. The gap between Manway and the rest of the Valar, as we were talking about, right? He's the only one who knows the mind of Eluvitar. He's the only one who pays attention when Olmo talks, right? You know, we, we we've seen those gaps, um, but he doesn't. He doesn't make anything, right? Presumably, Carrie, he could, right? But he doesn't, um, and that seems uh, seems seems important. Um, okay. Good. All right. Um, so we'll we'll stop there. The other passages I wanted to look at, and we'll get to them next time. Are uh, and you might review them at the end of the of Men chapter. What's listed as chapter seven in the Quentissimeronian, we get that those really interesting passages about the nature and the fate of elves. What happens to elves when they die, and all that stuff. Uh, I definitely, as you would probably guess, I definitely want to talk about that stuff. Um, we'll. Um, we'll go there next time, Uh, but we'll integrate that with the next stuff. So we're through Section 11 uh, for next week, which was the reading for this week. So if you've kept up with the reading, you can take the week off or just do some review uh, if, on the offhand chance that you have fallen behind, you have a brief reprieve. So no excuses next week. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next week. I'll be home again next week, Uh, finally, after being on the road for two weeks. uh, I look forward to that. Uh, And I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night.